social media is rewarding conflict. Instead of censoring conflict, it's rewarding the troll who sits out there and does stuff. And so what used to be constraining folks is now enabling them and possibly even growing the population of sociopaths and narcissists. And I think where he was headed, but I ran out of time and had to, like a phone call came in or something. But I, I think he was headed to there may be some tipping point when you get to enough of society behaving that way that it's really hard to fix it. Welcome to Humanizing Software where we explore our ever-evolving relationship with technology and its impact on our professional and personal lives. Hear incredible stories and gain valuable insights from global industry leaders as we discuss their relationship with software and how it's developed over the course of their career. As technology continues to evolve and brings us closer together, it should enable people to do what they do best while we uncover what they do best with the help of technology. And now your host, Andrew Tall. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. And welcome to today's edition, January 31st, of Humanizing Software, presented by Tailwind Business Ventures, when we meet with and have fireside chats with leaders around the world on a host of different topics, but centered around this concept known as humanizing software, or more specifically, being able to keep the people in technology. We invite you to join the conversation online. Watch us on our previous episodes on YouTube, where we have each one of our guests that are available for viewing. And again, engage with us on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on any one of the variety of different channels in which we're operating, and join the conversation on humanizing software. We've been blessed to have a number of guests in the past, like Leslie Wingo, Michael Ward, Topeka Sangam, uh, Henrik Karian, and others who have shared their thoughts and input and wisdom on this topic of humanizing software. And today, I'm very excited to have someone join us who I've not only known, but also respected since almost the very day that I got back to Austin, Texas, given almost 15 or 16 years ago. Bill Leak will be joining us today. Bill is a former McKinsey and Company consultant. He has deep and broad level marketing expertise where he has specifically worked with a very diverse and wide range of clients, driving provable revenues through digital marketing since the early 90s. One unique piece, which I'm sure we're going to be talking about today at Power Computing, he was the very first individual and built the first company to sell over $1 million of product over the internet, well before Amazon or eBay was even around. Currently, he is the CEO of Apogee Results, and he has guided the company from its inception to its current position as one of the most respected independent search engine marketing firms in North America with hundreds and hundreds of happy clients. We are very blessed to have Bill join us as he also serves on the Paid Search Association Board, is part of the Austin Technology Council Board formally, and serves as an inventor, excuse me, an investor, an advisor, and mentor to many companies. Bill has also been there for me many times when I asked the question, how in the world does this, whatever this may be, work? So please join me as we have Bill Leak come into the conversation today. Thanks for uh, having me on. A, a pleasure to be here and always good to see you virtually. You clean up pretty well virtually, but you're even better face-to-face. -face. Excellent. And I want to make sure that we are able to see you, Bill. I'm having some trouble currently camera-wise. I want to make sure that is on my end 
and that you're good to go uh, on the actual chat itself. Well, I can see you and I can see We've got you. you. Okay. We've got that's perfect. Excellent. Just wanted to make sure everybody gets to see your uh, your bright and shiny face. So, good morning, Bill. Welcome to the conversation. So, Bill, can you hear me? I can hear you. Fantastic. We're going to go ahead and start off with my favorite question of the day and my favorite question that we like to ask all of the guests that join us. I've just given kind of the written bio of Bill, but the written bio of Bill is something that anybody can glean from LinkedIn or a whole variety of different sources. Now we've got the actual source. So Bill, tell us the story of Bill Leak, the man, the myth. Well, it's probably more myth than reality. And, and, and I, I'm hoping... The story is still being written, and I'm, I'm hoping I have a number of chapters left. So, <laughs> but you know, I've, I've been fortunate to have been in Austin for some period of time talking about humanizing things. I mean, uh, English is a Germanic language with a lot of French Latin grafted onto it, but some of the more powerful humanizing words are the short guttural German words. And the four letter F words in particular are, you know, food, you know, stuff like that. There's one in particular that got me to Austin and that was free. So you, you don't often in life get offered a bribe that's both legal and ethical to accept. And I got offered free graduate school. So I thought, you know, I could slum at UT for a couple of years if I have to. That's, that's bad. It was a great. It was a great school, a great program. But 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 I did lie. I did respond well to the ethical four-letter Germanic F word of free MBA. So I came here for that. Ended up in a situation where ended up in Austin, and my Rolling Stone stuff was getting on a plane. Well, other than last summer when I went to the concert, but when they came through Austin, but. Uh, it's been a fun journey watching this little bit toddler of a town, you know, sort of start beating on its chest and say it's an adult. And it's still not an adult. You know, it's it's a teenager. It's getting there, but it thinks it's an adult. And it's been really fun watching it develop over the years. And I've done, oh gosh, just all kinds of companies, was was president of one of the very first SaaS companies in Austin. And we, we, uh, we built the, the world's first web-based timesheet and launched it first as a client server and then it, then it was SaaS and that was, you know, took it up to, uh, you know, software 500 size and a, and a good growth clip, then enjoyed uh, going through the 2000 tech downturn and started a company in the middle of that, grew, grew that thing up to over 100 folks and that was a good ride and then got to enjoy the 2008 tech downturn and watched that and for a while actually went and ran marketing for a company out in uh, Northern California, helped them get public, but, you know, realized that you know, my little spread here, which is not all that impressive by any means, but it would be impossible to replicate out there for less than $20 million. And nobody's offered me that kind of signing bonus before. So, <laughs> so, so came back and, and, and restarted something that I know well, which was, you know, how to, how to actually harness the power of the, the search engines and the social networks and that to bring people to somebody's web property. And then when they get to the web property, you know, clean up after whatever, you know, funky web designer they had who, you know, built a half functional website and actually make the website do what it was meant to do with the right people. And it's, I do hope that marketing and sales will, will someday get fully aligned, but there's still a lot of money to be made in marketing and sales alignment because uh, a lot of marketing people just have never carried a bag. They don't know how to sell. And a lot of marketing people, uh, I wouldn't trust with a spreadsheet because a lot of them can't do math. 
And now, now salespeople can't write. So like there, there are other issues there. You know, you really when you see what some of them send out to clients and prospects, it's ghastly, but it, it still seems to work. So it's just been a fun journey. So as part of this journey, I believe that you had a stint over at, I believe some of us may have heard of this university known as Yale. That was part of your educational experience. Another four letter word. Yes. <laughs> We're going to keep going to those Germanic F letter words. In this case, it's a. I actually did know, I don't anymore, but once upon a time, I did know Chris Ray and Anderson <laughs> Cooper. There are, there are a bunch of characters who cycle in and out of that place. Multiple folks all across the board. So yes. you were brought to Austin. You had a number of different experiences. Yes. You've founded and grown a number of different companies, had the educational side with UT and with Yale. And the thing that I'm particularly interested in uh, starting off with, is this growth of Austin from mm -hmm. its infancy to now the, I'll call it gangly teenager or wanting to become adult stage with Austin being viewed more and more so as kind of an epicenter of growth in a variety of different types of industries. Great article that came out last year about the over 150 uh, companies that have relocated to their headquarters to Austin uh, during the pandemic, which I found quite, quite enlightening. So I'd be curious to get your take on Austin back in the day when you were at UT and Austin now in 2023, the difference, what does that look like? And everything else is a part of that. Uh, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that journey and transition. So, so back in the mid nineties, we really didn't have much of a software industry. It was almost still all semiconductors and hardware. Uh, Dell was still in grad school. I, I worked at Dell the summer of 93, and that was the year that it had just exploded from 700 mil to like 1.9 bill or in one year. And everything was coming off. You know, the wheels were falling off. It almost went bankrupt, had cash crunches. That was when the flaming laptops 1.0 happened. Later on, they had flaming laptops 2.0, which, you know, was not, they got past it. I mean, it's, you know, they got the Dell dude in and everything worked fine again. But we had Dell and we had National Instruments as kind of the, the hot companies. Tivoli was the only software company really on the ground. And then in 94, Trilogy Software arrived and I had a, a stint working there after the MBA. And uh, that's an interesting hidden story of Austin, but you can make a pretty compelling argument that what Trilogy did was actually more impactful than anything Austin Ventures ever did, and possibly more impactful than what Dell did. Dell created a lot of wealth and a lot of investment capital, but a lot of that ended up leaving Austin. And, and Trilogy, for the first time, put a lot of Stanford and Carnegie Mellon and MIT and just the world-class software engineers into Austin for the very first time. And though a lot of them have left and ended up in, in other places, a lot of them have stayed there, stayed here and been at the nucleus of a whole bunch of very successful software companies, including, uh, including one of our, our larger unicorns, Indeed, the job search site. So lots and lots of change. I love the trilogy analogy, especially relative to those companies that a number of folks have heard of, but perhaps haven't understood the impact. There's a number of individuals, and I'd love to get your take on some of the OGs, so to speak, on the Austin industry, excuse me, on the Austin technology industry side back in the day that were those folks who were moving and shaking before moving and shaking was really a thing. And that helped impact the uh, the various communities. Any right. Any insights or thoughts on that, Bill? 
I mean, a, a lot of the Tivoli execs you had uh, went out and subsequent successful things. You know, Waveset and Sailpoint have both come out of folks who were, uh, you know, Mark McLean. You know, early trilogy. He's been a, a fixture for successful and first class. You know, just class act fixture for multiple decades in the Austin scene. But he he was at Tivoli back in the day. Some of the trilogy folks, you know, Eric uh, Huddleston, who recently, uh, you know, he was at Between Markets, but most recently he sold his company to Cvent. I'm briefly blanking on them, but they were the Trendkite, you know, metrics for PR and, and analytics for PR uh, company. Uh, he's He was early trilogy. Uh, Josh Bear was over at Trilogy from Capital Factory. Uh, at the time he was in Trilogy, he wasn't he wasn't OG in the in the tech scene until he he started Cap Factory a little more than a decade ago. And you know we had several several leaders of what was once the Austin Software Council that then turned into the Austin Technology Council. You know the the in the late '90s you still had George Kosmeski coming around and being involved in the Austin Technology Incubator. You had Admiral Inman, Bobby Inman was still doing stuff. His son still lives in Austin and is a, is a great guy, uh, do, does things in, in uh, venture capital and private equity. You had uh, Laura Kilcrease, you know, an early female pioneer, and then she did uh, some very successful venture things after that. Unfortunately, she's taken her skill set further north. I believe she's... Uh, and I think Laura came back from Canada. Uh, she has she returned to us. I think she has. Oh, that'd be amazing. That would be great. You know, we had a bunch of folks that started spinning out of Dell and doing doing things in the late '90s, early 2000s. But but in in the late '90s, we did not have nearly as much going on. It was easy to know everybody in the community pretty darn quickly because there there wasn't that much of a community on the software side. You know, historically, Austin had been a, a semiconductor town. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see that and making the changeover from Dell, from National Instruments, from Silicon Labs, from the, we're going to be in the chipset side, we're going to be in the laptop side, we're going to be in something hardware related to now fast forward a couple plus decades or so, there is a great and very, very diverse ecosystem, not only of hardware, but also of software. Chips continue to grow with Samsung building out their $17 billion factory mm -hmm. outside of Austin and Taylor and others. Obviously, uh, Elon has brought his 66 different companies uh, and growing over to uh, uh, over to Austin um, and others um, as well that are making um, Oracle uh, relocating their headquarters over here. Just a variety of different folks. And what's interesting to me is, <clears throat> and I love the fact that you've kind of had an excellent roll call of folks. It's, it's great to recognize their contributions. And each one of those folks was a huge, had a huge impact in their own way in terms of making Austin go again from its infancy uh, further along. But let's talk about the impact of individuals of the mindset change as it pertains to influencing an industry. So you started off, you were doing digital marketing before digital marketing was digital marketing, I think would be a fair statement. Let's talk about that initial journey of old school marketing of communicating message versus non-digital means versus now everything practically is in front of you from some digitized or electronic means. What does that what does that migration and shift look like from your perspective, Bill? Well, you know, initially I got into digital marketing almost accidentally. I'd, I'd been actually, you know, more of a finance guy at McKinsey. And, you know, power computing, we were selling to Apple users and people may not remember, but at one point Apple was on life support. 
you know, before they they came out with the iPod, they were really, really struggling. And one of the things that that one of Jobs' predecessors had tried to do is let's let's finally emulate Microsoft and allow and have clones and, and focus on the software and allow a bunch of people to make the hardware. And, and power computing was one of Austin's early success stories. It was the fastest growing company in history for a brief period of time. Went from zero to 100 million faster than Compaq. Compaq was the previous record holder. And about three months after power computing broke Compaq's record, Netscape broke our record. And now there've been a whole bunch of other folks that got to 100 million fast. But you know, for like for two months, you know, power computing was the fastest growing company in history to hit 100 mil. And you know, when you're selling $3,000 computers, it's kind of like these mattress companies. Like we have a hometown success story, Satva, that competes against Casper, the other brand. It it doesn't take selling a lot of mattresses to get up to like the seven figures and the eight figures because they're they're high dollar items. But we had to go to the internet because it was hard to find Macs in stores back then. They were buying them in catalogs and the internet was basically a catalog like channel. And so we ended up being the first company ever to hit a million dollars in product sales on the internet. You know, shortly thereafter, you know, eBay got there, Amazon got there, Dell got there, but we beat them to it because we didn't have a lot of other channels. And so, you know, we were, we were inventing things that didn't exist like shopping carts <laughs> and, and configuration engines and all kinds of crazy things. But if you're selling, you know, a $3,000 computer, you know, how many computers does it take to get to a million bucks? It's actually not that many. <laughs> you know? So somewhere around 350 computers and you're over a million bucks. <laughs> so, and, and, and now like a million dollars is so laughable. You know, it's like Dr. Evil, $1 million. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so you started off and I'm curious to see because you were truly creating a new channel, a new means of which of communicating. We, um, we were we were creating a, a new means of communicating to the dispersed community of Mac users who would really a lot of them would have to drive a really long distance to get to a Mac store back then because Mac was on life support. And so they were already trained to buy with catalogs. And some of it was the shift of and a lot of them because they're computer users were early adopters of the Internet. I mean, the, the interesting stuff out there when you go deep into into humanizing software is Apple came out with this weird thing shortly after they launched their first Mac way back when, which was called HyperCard. And nobody knew what to do with it, but it was basically a bunch of pages that could link to each other. It was on what we would now call, it was just localized. It wasn't out there, but some of the things, you know, it's interesting how tech is sort of a jumble, you know, and early things like Friendster prefigures other stuff. I, when I was running, you know, president of a software company that still exists called Jernix, one of the problems I had with my sales team is they were all addicted to some goofy web 1.0 thing called hot or not. And I had to go in there and police that and say, you know, no, you can do that in your spare time. But, and hot or not was basically just holding up rating cards with pictures of humans and over and over again. But in a way that that prefigured Tinder, which Tinder is just hot or not with a buy now button attached. <laughs> <laughs> Tinder and a whole bunch of others. That entire business well, model yeah. is something it, that has dramatically yeah. grown. Yeah, Grinder might be the buy right now button. You know, Tinder <laughs> might have a little bit of a delayed reaction. <laughs> <laughs> 
So it all started with hot or not is what I'm hearing yeah, you say. I think it was all hot or not, and then it, but it, it had no relief valve. It had nothing beyond that. So, so the other one started adding like an actual path to a transaction. So the initial piece, you, you mentioned that you guys were creating stuff that had never been invented before. Or had been invented in other ways, but not digital. Okay. And there are some Austin success stories that that people have never heard about. Like one of my grad school classmates, I, I wrote the initial business plan for him and, and, and procured the domains. And they built a $30 million company in e-com in town that in the small engine parts space, which, you know, it's parts are a high margin item. And and if, if you're trying to buy and you go to your local lawnmower store, I mean, they're not cheap. And so basically build a direct to consumer thing for like the people who could put a spindle themselves on the lawnmower or, you know, could do some chainsaw repair and stuff like that. And uh, there, there are a lot of those things where, you know, had they thought about it differently in hindsight, you know, my buddy's kicking himself. He's saying, huh, well, we had, we had to build our own ship station and we had to build our own this and our own Shopify and our own that. Why do we go into e-com? Why don't we just sell the picks and shovels to everybody else rather than have to compete against Bezos. But, you know, back then it was complex. I mean, it took, used to take your first multiple seven figures of capital to build the software. You know, we didn't have lean startup and, you know, Eric Reese, who lean startup guy who also went to my four letter word institution and is a solid guy, but uh, we didn't have the concept of MVP. We kind of did it as much as possible, but, but software building was a lot more expensive back then. And, And now you can, with the pre-assembled almost Lego block-like kits and the, and the, and the foundational things that have been built. A lot of times you can get to an MVP now on 50 to hundred K. And, you know, the, the real challenge is the humanizing part. In other words, the marketing, the customer acquisition. And, and that's a part where Austin still struggles a little bit. You know, we, we absolutely have major league talent in the software building. We're getting much better at the marketing and sales, but historically Austin was a place where you could build great software, but it was always the, always the bridesmaid and never the bride in terms of valuations. Cause you know, the, all the companies got stuck at, you know, five to 10 mil and couldn't really cross into the revenue range where, you know, they were worth nine figures, let alone 10. Sure. And, so, and, and we still have a little bit of that problem. I mean, we, we, you know, we do have a lot of people showing up to the game you know, proclaiming that they're the, you know, Alabama football team of digital customer acquisition. And they're not even really the Texas state team. They're more like the St. Stevens team. Uh, (laughs) Multiple threads that I want to pull on that. And I'm not even sure where to begin because there's lots of stuff to dig in on that. Starting off with the, you used to spend seven figures, your capital to build software. And obviously at Tailwind, that's exactly what we do is custom software development. And we are able to get to an MVP in a much, much dramatically reduced time frame, only because the software tools, the technology, the know-how, the wherewithal, it, it's just, there's rapid iteration. We're an agile shop. Uh, we can give countless different uh, examples of what that's meant. And our approach of humanizing software, of keeping the people into the technology, as you have just said, is, is something that's of critical importance to us. Let's talk about that for a second. It's not necessarily rocket science to build a coding or software program to do something. Being able to do it where it actually has an impact, it's intuitive and able to be seen, interacted and used by people seems to be that 
big crossing of the chasm relative to making something go from, oh, that's cute to, wow, it's now ubiquitous. What in your mind is the differentiation between cute mm -hmm. and ubiquitous from a user experience perspective? Well, some of it is, is it solving a problem? Uh, and some of it is, is it feeding people dopamine? Like, you know, TikTok is feeding people a lot of dopamine. And, uh, you know, I read a funny article recently that was funny and scary at the same time because it was half true, but it was it was talking about it effectively being a, a Chinese bioweapon because not only is it hoovering up biometric data and potentially blackmailable offenses for all of America's youth, you know, down the road, if we still had something called shame, you know, in our culture. But more importantly, it's it's learning what people respond to and then taking what the social net, what Google did and then what Facebook did, but really taking it down to microdosing of like tailoring what it serves users to what they know the user is going to respond to. So it's, you know, back in the day, we had our problem of, gosh, it's just hard to turn the TV off because maybe there's something just marginally interesting on the next channel. But it wasn't personalizing that to our taste. It didn't have a Netflix-like recommendation engine knowing that, oh, if, if I show Andrew this, there's no way he can turn it off. And that's an example of code that can be ubiquitous and it, and it humanized and optimized for humans, but it's maybe optimized to parts of us that are vestigial remnants of reptile brain evolution, like an appendix that maybe is not the part that is inspires us to greatness or even just like getting the laundry done. So you're saying the starting off with TikTok and realizing three hours later that you've lost three hours of your life and you can't remember where that three hours has really been. There might be some goods and there might be some bads associated with that. Yeah. You know, incentivizing everyone else to share it with others. So like if I'm losing my life, I'm going to like infect other people with these reels as well. <laughs> it's interesting. I just saw the results and I know that it'll be a fascinating conversation or something to watch. The must see TV mm -hmm. is TikTok's CEO going before Congress solo, either mm -hmm. on the 16th or the 23rd of March to say, no, no. We're good. We're doing good. And it'll be interesting to see. And I'm not disputing the fact that the technology itself of creating life hacks, funny moments, the ubiquitous cat videos, the funny things that your dog may or may not have done, all of that is, it's funny, it's light, it's humorous, and can add just um, a little bit of a lighthearted touch to life, as well as being educational in some cases. And he, it's, it'll be hard for him to not look more human than Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that'll be interesting, and we see we'll, we'll, we we see how well Meta's done in the market. Yeah, you know, even if the even if the uh, the the hologram falls apart and and his and he's revealed in his like real life lizard suit, he's still going to look more human than Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> you mean maybe slightly too much automaton there, just a little bit, perhaps just a tiny bit. That's that's awesome. One other thing I wanted to, to say on, on on your question is. The other way to make an impact is to incorporate, you know, the, what they used to call human factors engineering, but the kinds of things we do on websites to optimize them for interaction. Your shop, I know, does some of this. A lot of software shops do none of it in terms of actually doing or having as an option doing user testing as part of the coding process rather than you know, just kind of launching it out there and then hoping the dogs are going to eat the dog food. I mean, if you're trying to figure out a blue screen versus a red screen or a button here versus a button there, a lot of those things are testable 
you know, early in the dev process, not at the very end. And, and you know, just like all the kinds of things we do with websites to figure out or, or digital ads, like are people more likely to click on a puppy or, you know, a kid? And the answer is it depends. Let's talk about that because that's interesting. The concept of A-B testing has been around for a very, very long time. Check this, check that. What is more impactful? Mm -hmm. What is more engaging? And your red screen, blue screen analogy is is hugely impactful there. It seems like, well, that's easy. That's why, why would you not just make the easy decision? Well, it's not that easy because depending upon who you're talking to and who you're trying to engage with, that action is directly dependent upon what, what you're trying to generate. And it can be radically different depending yes. upon the audience. Yes. And, so and, and who's your customer? Yes. And, and so let's talk about that. The manifestation of digital marketing mm -hmm. as the customer has evolved, marketing has evolved. What is your take relative to what you used to do with power computing back in the 90s? versus what people are now doing in the 2020s? Well, in a lot of ways, the expectation bar is a lot higher. I mean, sometimes it's not. Like, Drudge Report still looks like Drudge Report. Amazon is very, very cautious about making changes. They violate most of the rules, the templates around how things should be in terms of UX and usability, but they're so ubiquitous that they've trained people in their interface, and now people expect that. And so it's actually... For Amazon, it works. So, but but expectations are a lot higher, you know. It, and you know, like people look at this thing, and and a lot of youth are like binge watching whole shows on on a tiny little screen. And the Google index is all about mobile. And ironically, this is a smaller computer than the one that we're having process our meeting. But people's expectations are that this is going to be instantaneous. That the microcomputer is going to be even faster than the larger computer. So expectations are higher, but a lot of it really comes down to kind of know your customer. I mean, we had we had a client once that we really helped build and it really didn't, in their case, it didn't matter how bad their website is. It's always good to have a functional website, but the pain they were addressing was so intense that people would crawl, you know, so it, it's a combination of almost like a PL statement. How big is the pain? And then how easy are you making it to find the cheese? But if the pain is big enough, the rat's going to find the cheese. And in this case, the, the pain was pre-Obamacare, pregnant, comma, no insurance. And it's like, that's, you know, at that point, it's like, I'm going to find the cheese. There's cheese here for me that I need because high pain, which is also why florist websites are typically the highest converting on the web, no matter how fugly they are. Interesting. Because crap, that birthday is today. Oh. <laughs> like, yeah, just click, click, buy. Can buy, you send buy. in four hours? Yeah. Save yeah. my bacon, make yeah. it happen. Okay. Yeah. Ouch, that, that's a lot of money for a flower that hurt, but there's no other options at this point. <laughs> Sort of, sort of like dynamic web pricing for the uh, plane ticket that you need to get for tomorrow yeah, versus yeah. when you would have bought it two months ago. Exactly. I mean, the, the flowers are a lot less expensive at Trader Joe's or HEB, but that doesn't work for a cross-country delivery. <laughs> yeah, absolutely the case. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that relative to the conversion rate only because, and it gets back to your rat and cheese, the motivation is extremely high where you realize, oh, wait a minute, I need to do something. 
is this somebody or some product that can actually solve my particular need here? If so, great, click buy, 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 buy now as soon as I can. Yeah. And that conversion just automatically follows. And, and those, if the, if the pain points are, are fast delivery, then other things like price and, you know, how pretty was the website kind of, <laughs> kind of go out the window. But, but in other cases, like, you know, just common sense. Sometimes the best thing to do is what everybody else isn't like, in most markets, you know, unlike in politics where 50% plus one vote is a winner take all, would you be happy with a 20% market share of software dev in Houston and Dallas and Austin and San Antonio, like just in Texas? Like 20% market share is not all about, we helped another outfit that uh, was doing debt consolidation back before the 2008 financial crisis. And they were crushing it because everybody else had read Google AdWords for dummies. Everybody else had like, you know, normal looking websites, but they all looked like kind of boring bank like websites. And they were kind of sort of maily. They were kind of geared. To, and what, what we did for this outfit is we asked just some crazy questions like, you know, are females allowed to have credit cards in modern America? Apparently they weren't back in the early 60s and 70s at crazy times. I could go imagine, but you know, are females capable of using credit cards? You know, it, would it be possible that not just males, but females could also get into debt? And might there be some ways of testing? Like, and so these guys ended up with the only thing, everyone else has Google AdWords for dummies. And they're the only one that says, we, we really focus on helping females get out of debt. And then you go to their website and, you know, just like when you, you know, if, if you've ever accidentally or purposefully ended up in a female restroom, you'll notice they have things like couches and crazy things sometimes. <laughs> like they know better than to put that in a boy restroom. Ew. Like, but but they, you can trust females with that kind of stuff, apparently. Well, you go to a, a website that was actually designed around like, you know, slightly different color, slightly different language. And, and more of a, we understand, you know, and, and, and we'll work with you kind of thing. And they, they just crushed it. They just crushed it. So sometimes it's, it's, if everyone else is marching down one way, kind of be a little bit orthogonal and, and, and at least have your, you know, what a, the old school chasm theory, they call your beachhead, have your beachhead be where, where other people aren't. And then you can always, once you've landed, you can expand into the other place. So several things I want to touch on there, especially relative to, Something we've talked about on previous episodes is this concept of technology for good, technology for bad. Lots of folks have had different weighing in mm -hmm. relative to what that looks like. I'm curious to get your take on examples that you've seen over the years mm -hmm. of what I would call good technology that mm -hmm. engages properly and that touches and impacts and reach out to, that reaches out to mm -hmm. folks versus potentially examples of software that just is really not hitting the mark at all kind of pluses and minuses Are there any examples that you may be able to give bill on the negative side i really worried about leaning into this short-term dopamine and the tearing apart that you know it, it kind of started with google doing some personalization of results and and hiding some results and pushing things facebook much more would you know it, it would present people with what they thought they wanted to see. And some of that was, you know, just had so many friends. Well, I'm just going to feed them the friends that they are interacting with regularly and, and not display stories of like the friends they don't interact with lately. And, you know, it gets to the point where 
you know, someone could die. Someone could go through a divorce. Something would happen and you wouldn't know. And you're still thinking, well, if it happens, it'll, I'll see it on the wall. So this kind of that the algorithms feeding you things that generate engagement, which allows them to sell more ads. So they're not focused on what's good for you. They're focused on what's good for them, which is engagement and selling more ads. And that's that can lead to like Jordan Peterson recently had a piece that, that I, I watched part of. It was kind of long, so I didn't watch all of it. But uh, he said something interesting that stuck with me. And that's that, you know, so many of the ills of society are, are I'm probably going to butcher what he said, but are kind of the dark triad personality traits of like narcissists and sociopaths. And, and the point was those people don't have internal constraints. They are only kept in control by external constraints. You know, whether it's shame, whether it's it's other folks, people rolling up on them, or or, or just consequences to their bad behavior. And I think the point he was making is there are people who are just going to be narcissists. There are people who could be narcissists or could be on the other way. There are a lot of borderline cases and that social media is rewarding conflict. Instead of censoring conflict, it's rewarding the troll who sits out there and does stuff. And so what used to be constraining folks is now enabling them and possibly even growing the population of sociopaths and narcissists. And I think where he was headed, but I ran out of time and had to, like a phone call came in or something. But I, I think he was headed to there may be some tipping point when you get to enough of society behaving that way that it's really hard to fix it. Hmm. Yeah, I've listened a couple of times to Jordan, usually through my favorite podcast. Shout out to Jocko Willink on Extreme Ownership, but he's Jordan's been out there with Jocko a few times on, on leadership and the, the psyche behind that. But it, it's an interesting take. So understood on the dopamine-laced potential negative software side, what are some examples on the positive, the good side of software where you've seen it be become engaging, positive, proactive, and uh, uh, essentially engaging folks? You know, I've, I've seen a lot of good things, like a lot of the health apps are doing a, a good job of that. I've seen uh, more and more th things that actually do provide an assist. You know, you always have to ask what's the bias that's programmed into the assisting device, but things on the educational side, we, we are getting better. You know, and things are a lot less kludgy than they used to be in a lot of cases. It, we're making it easier for people to find the cheese they want to find. You know, that's counterbalanced by every time you, there's a cat and mouse game. Like every time you have a good thing that comes about, like ratings and reviews, which was initially a wonderful thing to be able to aggregate and say, oh, you know, thumbs up. But then you have industries now that do fake reviews. You know, and lots and lots of fake reviews. And you've got industries that do negative reviews on the, the editors. And then you got shakedown rackets like Yelp that, you know, do their kind of thing with reviews. Every positive, you know, it's it's sometimes a three steps forward, two steps back kind of thing. All those are, are good things. We're, we're allowing humans, and AI may change this, and we can talk a little bit about positives and negatives there, but humans are able to have more impact and get more data on many things than they could before. I mean, there's still crazily some areas that we can't. I'm working on a venture right now in the conference space that's focused on that. Like, why can't I easily compare you know, uh, which IT show to go to of the 50 to 500,000 that are out there. If I'm looking at going to a blockchain show, uh, why can't I compare them like dishwashers on Home Depot? Hmm. Why do event organizers not allow me to rate and review their event? Well, I kind of understand why they might not want that, but 
there's sort of a need for that. And so there are still spaces out there that, I mean, the internet is still full of huge opportunities. And, and in fact, you know, one of the things that excites is looking at that because a lot of the early web things need to be reinvented, like Auto Trader. You know, once Cox bought it, they haven't really done much with it. So, you know, someone's going to make a gazillion dollars inventing the better version of Craigslist Autos, Auto Trader, and Facebook Marketplace for Autos because they're all old and kludgy. So maybe we should talk about how to do this with uh, Tailwind software because you guys do. <laughs> <laughs> Tailwind could certainly help it. It's a valid point. And it's interesting you talk about that relative to Kluge software. And obviously that speaks to the fact of an earlier comment that you made about, yes, you can test earlier on in the development cycle to make sure that John or Jane Doe or whoever it is that you're trying to approach is actually having some degree of that they're resonating with what they're, they're accepting what you're pitching to is yeah. essentially that. And I think it speaks to the fact that from a Tailwind side, we call it software as a relationship. It's all over our site of putting the relationship back into the software side of the equation. It's why we did this humanizing software livecast and the subtitle of this humanizing software livecast is something that's really even more important. It's three words, people driven tech, right up there in green, right specifically about that. And that has a number of different meanings for different folks. So I'm curious for you, Bill, when, because I know we talked about this before you we were coming on the show and we talked about your involvement over the last several decades of what you've seen kind of go from 1.0 to 2.0 to 3.0. When I say the three simple words, people-driven tech, what comes into mind from your side? It is actually enabling humans to be more productive, to be pursuing happiness better to uh, to improve their condition and helping humans like may maybe a technical way of describing is helping humans stay above the API. So one of the things I, I don't want to be below the API where I'm just the tax the task rabbit executing the AI driven instructions of my overlord. okay you know I, I don't want to be the battery for the uh, for the matrix. And you don't want to be the automaton. Yeah, there is some people-driven tech that actually is driving people. Like, you know, I, I am finally falling prey to using maps and, and turn right, turn left, do this. I resisted that for years because I really like to know. I mean, I know people who've been in Austin now for a decade and they still don't know where anything is. And, you know, I'm old school. I always have those paper maps that we'd have in our car. And once we'd gone somewhere, you know, like, we, well, we used to memorize hundreds of phone numbers too, but... We would kind of know how to get back there again and then have a general sense of where that fit in the broader, you know, globe. And that would be people-driven tech in a way, but now, no, sometimes we're tech-driven people. And, you know, if we, if we don't pay enough attention, sometimes it'll put us in a lake. But I'm, I'm finally succumbing to that because it is, it does increase productivity. And, you know, the, the question is, what do we want to retain with our brains? I mean, really memorizing... It does kind of suck that I've forgotten most of the birthdays too, and that they're in a device that has led to some problems uh, over the years. And I really don't want to fill it up with memes and emojis, you know, like the other space of the brain. But in theory, these things liberate us to go actually like have experiences and fill up those areas of the brain rather than with, you know, two gazillion street addresses with, with tactile and sensory memories. That's so 
Uh, oh man, yeah, this smart device having seemingly sucked brain cells away and made me forget or made me not have as big of a priority phone numbers of folks where it's just a matter of search, click, or hey Siri, mm -hmm. or whatever else might be a part of that. And of course, she just woke up on the phone because she's always listening. Yes. And the interesting component of that is the, the leveraging of a map the leveraging of text-to-speech, this concept of, uh, you know what, I need a new pair, uh, or excuse me, I need some new file folders, or I need something. Click Amazon, boom, can do it in 15 seconds, and it'll be here tomorrow. And that just, again, it helps out on the efficiency side. And it's a good, typically good experience. But that brings to mind something that we've talked about quite a bit in our earlier episodes. And something that I want to explore as we get close to the top of the hour and make sure that we're um, covering off as many different topics as we can. This concept of the easy button, mm -hmm. make it one touch, click one touch buy. it shows up tomorrow. Awesome. Versus the privacy, the security, the safety, everything relative to, are you comfortable with Siri always listening of giving up personal data? of trading off security and privacy for making things easy and being ubiquitous. Comments and thoughts on that, Bill? Humans seem really willing to, you know, they may talk a game about privacy, but when you look at what they actually do, most of them don't have a concern in the world. My daughter who's finishing up electrical engineering at UT, you know, she she has her Alexa box. A lot of people do. It, it adds convenience. We really don't think until it's almost too late. Like, well, what data did we give Facebook back in the day? You know, what data are, are people giving TikTok now? And our friends in the Chinese Communist Party, uh, you know, they're, they're, they probably only have benevolent intents for us and with that data. I mean, until they don't, until they don't. Uh, but for that to change, it, it'd be kind of a massive shift. We are, we talk a privacy game. Europe talks a slightly better privacy game, but it, it seems like we'll do almost anything for convenience in terms of what we actually do. So most of it's just talk. I mean, Apple's done a few things for privacy, but was it really for privacy or was it to demonetize things for Facebook and Google and, and skew big tech more in Apple's favor while they can kind of greenwash it with a, oh, we're doing this because we care about our users. I don't know. So that leads to an excellent and last topic that I want to discuss specifically because it seems to be all of the rage in the last few weeks. And it's specifically right in our spot of humanizing software. Mm -hmm. Microsoft has invested up to $10 billion in OpenAPI. Mm -hmm. OpenAPI has come out with ChatGPT. ChatGPT is going to replace everything, everyone, and everybody because it's providing the source of hey, I can write a paper, I can create a speech, I can create digital art or new art. There's thousands of things that we can do with this magical AI component of ChatGPT. Comments and thoughts, Bill, positives, negatives, things to be aware of. There are definitely positives, there are definitely negatives. And Google has for a long time been supporting OpenAI as, as one of their larger donors. So it's, it's, it's going to be fun to see how that resolves itself. I'm stunned that Jasper, I hope they succeed because they're Austin based, but all they've done is glom a better interface on top of the same technology as ChatGPT and are charging money for it. 
but you know, you have guaranteed uptime. But uh, I mean, it's not their AI, they're using OpenAI's AI. So there are a bunch of chat GPT competitors out there. Version four is not out yet. It's interesting in that they stopped training it up to 2021. So you can't use the current version for like writing current news articles. It, it still thinks the pandemic is raging more than it is. It's not yet turned loose on the web. So you can't have it go do an active search or new learning or crawl for you. But all that's coming. So with, with ChatGPT today, it, it's pretty impressive. You can ask it to write things. If you use the flesh Kincaid scale, you can say, I want you to write this at a college level. So those kinds of things help it spoof Google. You know, you can edit it in many ways. The interesting thing about it is the content's not, uh, there are a couple of people who disagree with me, but for the most part, I don't find the content to be persuasive copywriting because that is still an art form. It doesn't sell. But as a listicle, it's, you know, it, it produces articles that were better than what eHow had back in the day or some of the earlier sites that Google's Panda algorithm kind of uh, demonetized all the demand media stuff. It writes better than a lot of writers. The challenge with writing typically is you, you pay for a cheap writer and you get something that's so bad back and spend so much time editing, you could you should, probably should have written it yourself. You know, sometimes you get the holy Toledo, this content's so good, I'm going to have a hard time improving it. But most of the time you kind of get the, this is something that I can edit. And today, ChatGPT is giving, if you're doing technical writing or you're doing educational writing, it's generally giving something back. And depending on how you ask the question, because you need to be specific, you want to say, give me at least X words or, or give me at least eight bullet points. And under each of those, I want you to give me at least three or four sentences because you'll get different responses for the same question with ChatGPT if, if it's a, a pithy or short question you're asking. So you, you almost need to detail in bullets your request. Think of it as a genie. It's going to do the laziest job it can of uh, answering the question you ask. So you need to think through your question and be detailed, but it's just going to get better. And so a lot of people who are, if they look in the mirror and they're honest with themselves and they're just sort of a so-so writer, I mean, it's time to go to plumbing school or <laughs> you know, figure out something that you're not at risk of the AI. Yeah, it's an interesting piece. One of the side challenges of that, one of many, many side challenges is you've got Getty Images and others that are suing left and right for trademark, copyright, other type of infringement of, hey, these are original works of art. We own them. You have used them and it's in the public realm versus so this whole ownership piece. And it's going to be quite, quite interesting to see what is truly original. And I think that's that's been the case for some time with everything from NFTs to the world is changing on an ever rapidly increasing yeah. scale. There are going to be some lawsuits that come out of this down the road. And where it's going to be very interesting is ChatGPT is not a search engine, but we're not that far away. Back when Google first really got out there, publishers were you know, a lot of publishers got demonetized because people would find what they needed on Google without actually having to spend a lot of time on the publisher's site where the ads are served up. ChatGPT has the potential to do this to, to the search engines because right now, you know, if Andrew wants to find something, Andrew is going to Indeed for jobs, Google for some things, but Andrew's doing the work. In theory, with ChatGPT, Andrew now has, let's just for kicks and giggles, call it Megan 
And Andrew tells Megan 3.0, I would like to know all of the diesel trucks that are for sale in a 50 mile radius between price ranges of X and Y and between model years of A and B. And now your bot goes out on the web and finds all that for you and brings it back and does the searching. And where are the ads? How does Google make its money there? That's what they're waking up in terror for. And it's, it's going to really rethink how we humanize websites because are the humans even going to be on our website or is there a bot that's going there and gathering data and bringing it back and displaying it on, on the computer screen because it went and crawled 20 websites to get that data? I did read the specific article about Google treating Microsoft's investment and chat GPT as going out into the public wild realm as a code red opportunity that was a significant potential negative impact to their business. And we could talk about, oh man, I wish I would have actually brought this up way, way earlier on. This might be a topic for podcast uh, or livecast 2.0 with Mr. Bill Leak because we've got so much more things to talk about. And yet we are at the end of our time today. So I want to tell you, Bill, thank you a thousand times over for joining us first and foremost, but more so sharing your insights, your thoughts, and your humor, which has always been something that I've thoroughly enjoyed since the day that I first met you. So thank you for joining us today. Great pleasure to be here. Thank you. So as we wrap up today, we want to make sure that people are engaging with us online, continuing this conversation relative to where Austin is going as a city, where ChatGPT is coming from an open API, or what the evolution of digital marketing has been over the last three decades, and what is good versus bad technology as it impacts others. Visit our website at tailwindsw.com. Check out Bill's group at Apogee Results. And we again invite you to join us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and all of the various different means to make sure that we're able to digitally listen, hear, and engage with each other. And as we wrap up today, we wish everybody a very, very good morning, a good afternoon, and a good evening. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Humanizing Software with Andrew Tall. Make sure you subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.